You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 184 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Um, I'm, I'm okay, Val. Like, we are, you know, in the first week of the school holidays. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, things are probably not as smooth sailing as they could be, but uh, I'm okay. I'm all right. Okay. I'm getting there. Okay. Yeah, I am. Well, I'm, I'm very actually, happy you know what I'm because doing? the neighbours – uh, well, I'm just going to say that because of the oh. school holidays, my neighbours, the four oh. boys across the road, gone. Excellent. Okay, sorry. Gone. <laughs> oh, those poor children. Look at the fact that their evil neighbour across the road is excitedly <laughs> rubbing her hands together. No, over I think they're delightful and I love to hear their playful squeals during the term. But, you know, it's just nice during the school holidays, that's all. Yes, of course it is. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, I, I'm actually, one thing I am doing at the moment, which is, you know, ironic given it is school holidays, but I'm actually um, reading through the teacher's notes for um, the Book of Secrets, which of course is book one in the in my new series, uh, The Adaban Cipher, which is coming out in September. So the, I don't know if you've ever actually read through a series of teacher's notes at all, Val, for any book ever. Is it, have you ever done that? I don't think I have. No. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting exercise from an author's perspective because, of course, you know when you um, – so the, the teacher's notes are curriculum linked. So it's all about, you know, using your book in a classroom situation to illustrate certain things that the that the children need to learn about writing or books or, or, or whatever aspect of um, – you know, sometimes they use mine for um, – well, the Mapmaker Chronicles, you know, they might use it in, um, you know, geography or they might use it in – like it's an interesting oh, – yes, of course. You can use it across a whole range of different things and it's the same with – um, the Adaban Cipher books because, you know, there's a there's a sort of a historical element to them and mm. um, sort of an alternate, slightly alternate or historical element. Um, but the, the interesting thing about them, reading them as an author, is the stuff that you discover about your own books <laughs> that you didn't realise. Like putting, what? Well, just things like, you know, how the – because someone else is always going to interpret your book slightly. Yes. Well, well, put it this way. You write the book – and you write the story as best you can and you write the story as it appears to you. And then it's not your story anymore. Then it becomes the reader's story. And so yeah. obviously somebody who's writing teacher's notes is reading your story with a very analytical eye and they're reading it with an eye to how is it going to be taught in schools. Now, if you think about books that you that you read at school – um, you know, and you were looking for themes and you were looking mm. for the role of the of the hero and you were looking for the hero's quest and you were doing, you know, remember all of those things that you studied yeah. in school? Okay, so this is this is somebody putting all of those things or or, or, dis, or discovering, finding um, all of those things in my story, which are not necessarily – they're not things that you consciously have in your mind when you're writing yes. the story. 
And so I, I, I read it and I, I wrote to my publisher and I said, is it completely normal as an author to just think, <laughs> really, really, really? <laughs> but did you agree with them? Did you, did the things that they identify as the themes or whatever it is that they wrote about uh, make sense to you? Well, they made sense to me, but they're, they're, again, they are not necessarily things I consciously thought about because when yes. you're writing a story, you are not analysing a story for um, for teaching purposes. So yeah. it's a it's a it's a little bit like there's the terrific meme that kind of does the rounds every once in a while, and it's a picture of a of a uh, window with blue curtains, mm-hmm. and the 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 top of the meme says, you know, um, what the English teacher says. And it's mm-hmm. got the curtains in this book represent the maudlin and melancholy, you know, um, uh, the maudlin and melancholy perspective of the hero, you know, as he goes about <laughs> his day-to-day existence. Yes. And then at the bottom it's got what the author thought or the, you know, what the author meant and it's got the curtains were blue. <laughs> you know, it's yes. just, you know, but, but the other interesting thing about it too is that the, the subconscious is a very funny place and so yes. – you can, you know, you make the curtains blue in the room without really thinking about it, but in actual fact, you probably it is part of reflecting the the, the hero's state of mind at the time, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So it's, uh, as I said, the subconscious is a funny place, and the subconscious brings, you know, ties things together in your story that you don't even actually realize that you're doing until you get to the end of the story and go, ah, oh, that makes sense now. Yes. So, yeah. So, yeah, it, it, very, look, I'd, I'd be fascinated to know if anyone else has had this experience. If you are listening and you have actually read teacher's notes or an analysis of your story at some point and thought, goodness me, wow, then please let me know. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to have a coffee with the teacher's notes writer of your teacher's notes and it'd be like – you know, visiting your therapist or something because they've interpreted everything that's well, come out of your brain. Well, I remember when I did it, I remember doing an interview very early on in my early days there of the Mapmaker Chronicles and I did an interview with a, um, with a newspaper, Tasmanian, and mm. it was a, a book reviewer who had obviously read the book very closely mm. and uh, she asked me about about um, – about the the sort of the sea monster, you know, in the book, and uh, you know how she thought it was a a metaphor for Quinn's, you know, innocence, and mm. and I was like, okay, yep, I can see that, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a sea monster but, but now that once, once I read that over the whole three books I could totally see what she where she was coming from and I could yes. and I could see my subconscious at work with that as well so it, yeah but sometimes it takes someone else reading it to go yeah I can totally see that and I'm like yep absolutely yeah absolutely yeah my partner has, strangely has a uh has that skill and he'll just oh. say oh that's the blah 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 or that's the girl he met at uni, or that's the whatever, you know. And, um, yeah, very, very clearly straight away. So he should write teacher's notes. He, he should clearly yes. be writing yes, teacher's clearly. notes. Yes. Maybe, I, maybe I should send my, my books to him first so that when yes. the teacher's notes come through I'm not surprised. Maybe that mm. would be <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's a good idea. Now, I want to give a shout-out to a couple of people. Now, remember last week we uh, gave a shout-out to Shankari Chandran because of her book, The Barrier. She did our crime and thriller course and has now released her own thriller book uh, and it's going very, very well. Um, 
that was reviewed in the Sydney Morning Herald in the weekend, um, very recently, in Spectrum and The Age. Uh, And alongside that review was a review of the book, um, the memoir Cold Vein by Anne Tonner, who did our life writing course and also went to our Writing in Paris course uh, a little uh, a while ago. And she has released her memoir, Cold Vein, which is, um, you know, won the, won the Finch Memoir Prize. And so both were featured in Spectrum, in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. I mean, it's such a wonderful thing even just to be selected, to be to be reviewed, uh, and even better when you get a great review. So just big shout-out to both of those people. Well yeah, done. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Yes, there you go. All right, shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing this week? Let's do that. All right. I came across a, um, a post on Medium, and it's called Keeping a Reading Journal Will Change Your Life. Now, there's yeah. often a lot of talk about keeping your own journal, uh, particularly for writers, um, particularly those people who are following the artist's way where every day you're meant to write three pages of whatever comes out of your head. And it's it's it can be a really useful exercise, but that's very much about your own writing, your own thoughts, your own um, – it, it's not necessarily an, an analysis of anything, it's just you writing. But this is suggesting a reading journal. Now, this is a reading journal where you – you read a particular book, but then you write down things like, and it suggests some elements to consider. Number one, the date finished. So that's pretty straightforward. Um, to a one paragraph plot summary. Now that's quite a useful exercise because it forces you to identify the plot points mm. and to, to, you know, to, to put them down in writing. Um, and then how much you liked the book on a scale of one to 10 so that you'll remember favorite passages or quotes. Now, I don't know if, uh, what you're like, Al, I know that <laughs> both you and I dog ear books have no problem. Yes, we with do. And you know books. what? You can hold your outrage. Okay. <laughs> because we've had this conversation before and we get this big pile on of people <laughs> who say you should never dog ear books, but we're out yes. and we're proud and we do it all the yes. time. Yes. So, but what I don't tend to do I mean I do it sort of more with with more like reference books perhaps but I but even then I I, I uh, it stresses me out is I don't underline no yeah oh no but you don't underline notes. either yeah post I use post-it notes but yeah, I yeah. definitely don't underline and no. I don't write in the margins but what I do do is is I highlight on Kindle if I'm reading yes. Kindle. And I love highlighting on Kindle and, um, you know, making notes and, and that sort of thing. So that can be useful if you are trying to remember your favourite passages or quotes. And that's one of the things that it suggests that you write down as well. So if you highlight on Kindle, they'll be easy to pull out. And if you're wondering how to pull it out, I did a blog post on the Writer Centre blog called How to Get Your uh, highlights out of Kindle jail, I think. <laughs> and because, um, yeah, you, you know, to get them out and print them out. Um, so just have a look at that if you if you want to <laughs> find out how. Your favourite scene in the book, your most liked character and why, your least liked character and why, and then the strengths of the book and the weaknesses of the book. Now, do you think this kind of exercise is a useful thing? And would you ever be tempted to keep a reading journal? No. You don't think it's no, a useful no. thing? 
I'm sure it's I'm sure it's useful, but no, I would never be tempted. I just don't have enough time in my life to yes. do that as well as everything else. Um, I think it's one of those situations where, um, yeah, no, look, I, I think it's a great idea. But to me, like I, I have never really enjoyed analysing books. I, I, I like to read. Like it's really interesting, you know. So, um, so uh, my son, Book Boy, had to write um, like a. a, a, a you know, assignment or something recently. And he wrote it about um, books that are actually really enjoyable, even if you think they're not, um, which is a strange thing. But like classics, okay? So things like, you know, Tom Sawyer and uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, the kind of stuff that kids would look at and go, oh, there's no way I would read that. And he even said in his opening paragraph, he goes, "Um, when you don't have to analyse them, these are great stories. And I think mm. that's probably a really like he's thirteen. I think mm. that's a really interesting insight. And I think that that's um, maybe I did enough of analysing books at um, at university and at, mm. at you know in school and stuff like that. So there are things where I, there are books that I keep the whole book because I love it, or I will keep you know like I might sort of like. Uh, print out a quote or something that I really enjoy, or I might refer, I might reread. I do reread books I really like, um, but my, my the idea of analysing it like it's a school assignment does not work mm. for me on any level. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm so, I'm sorry. Like I really want to like I want to support you here, but I can't. <laughs> okay, but how about I can see this- how it would be very a useful exercise? I can see it's a very very useful exercise. Yes, um, but it's just not probably something that I would personally do. But I'm not a, you know, we know that I am not a planner or a plotter. Yes. So this is not the kind of ex- this is not the kind of thing that would do it mm, for me on any interesting. level. Interesting, mm. that is so true. Because the thing that I thought was most useful out of the suggestions that they've put forward is the one paragraph plot summary. Because mm. I think it can really help, even if you're not a planner. Like if you are a pantser, if you look in retrospect and look at the, you know, summarize the plot and actually identify the plot points, I think it gets you into a good habit. It's if you're a new writer to make sure that you know what the important plot points are and that you can ensure that you have those key plot points at the right spots in your own manuscript. Absolutely. And I also think it's a terrific exercise if you are struggling with writing synopses is to write synopses for established Mm. books so that you can actually like, you know, you can, you can see how to get, you know, 50 or to 50 to a hundred thousand words down to one page. Like it's a real, that from that perspective, yes, very, I can see it's a very useful thing. Um, on, on many levels, there's a whole range of reasons why it would be. It's just not something I would do. Yes. And a lot of people do struggle with writing synopses. I read one on the weekend and I had to go back and say, this is not a synopsis. This is like what you find on the back cover of a book. It's not a synopsis. I actually mm-hmm. need to know what happens in the synopsis. Yes, there's a, di- there's a difference between a, a blurb and a synopsis. Mm. Yeah. One is a promotional tool and one is is a, what is the other one, Val? Publishing tool. Uh, well, it's... It, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's literally just telling you what happens in the book because yeah. that's not what happens on the back cover. Oh, yeah. All right, let's move on to another uh, link that we have. I believe you've got one called How to Launch Your Blog with Your Book in Mind. Oh, that yes, so this is an good. interesting one. Yes, I think it's a great one, um, you know, particularly uh, if you are considering an author blog and you are starting from scratch. Um, this is a great little post 
uh, it's a guest post on the blog by Kim, oh, sorry, on writersdigest.com by Kim Dinan I would, is how I would pronounce it, K-I-M-D-I-N-A-N. And she basically, like, she <laughs> – Interestingly, she started her blog nearly seven years ago and I started my blog probably around eight years ago. So she and I have made many of the same mistakes, which I think mm-hmm. is a really, really interesting thing. Um, and she she goes through basically the fact that she started this blog and she sort of had secret dreams of writing for magazines or publishing books. But at that point, she had no bylines or, or anything mm. like that. Um, so she sort of started this blog. And she says, you know, starting the blog was one of the best decisions she ever made because, you know, for the reasons that I talk about, it helps you to hone your voice, it connects you to communities. But then she says, if I could start it over again, I would, there are things that I would do differently. So she is basically saying, learn from my mistakes. And um, a couple of the points that she makes here, I think are really worth uh, discussing or, you know, just reiterating, because I know we do discuss this stuff a lot, but, you know, you can never go wrong with with, um, banging people over the head with things, I personally think. Um, So the first thing she says is to consider your domain name. And this is something that I have also done, you know, I also went about this in a very long and convoluted fashion. So my first blog was called Life in a Pink Fibro um, yes. and a pink fibro for our uh, overseas listeners. Hmm. Uh, a fibro is a style of house here in Australia um, and mine was pink. Therefore, you know, it was life in my small pink house. Um, yes. And I started it, I had just moved uh, down to the south coast from Sydney and it was kind of just about, there was a bit of tree changey stuff. There was a bit of, you yes. know, parenting. There was, I had small children, you know, it was a bit of blah, blah, blah. And um, <laughs> it was, uh, it was, it really was. Um, but, uh, you know, I got a lot of, a lot of out of it because I, I learned to write, you know, having written for magazines in a very outward focused voice for a long, long time, I learned to write in a much more intimate fashion. I learned yes. that people wrote back to me and I had to respond, which was, you know, a little bit confronting for someone who'd <laughs> always had a, an editorial assistant answering the phone. Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff that I learned from it. But, you know, if I had my time again, uh, I would do, as Kim suggests in her post, which is to, I would have named it alisontate.com. Yeah. Yep. right from the start because yep. of course it you know it's then I've been through several redesigns but I also had to transfer the entire community oh. from life in a pink fibro over to alisontate.com and you know you're always going to lose people along the way and it's just yep. um you start as you mean to go on and I think that yes. that's probably if you're starting out as a as an if you're thinking to yourself this is going to be my author blog then it needs to be your author blog it needs to be in your name so you need yep. to be alisontate.com, valeriecoo.com, et cetera, et cetera. And the same across all of your social media. Um, so it's, you know, if you're going to write under a pen name, then set it all up under that because it needs to be mm. that identity and it needs to be consistent. Now, the other thing that she suggests, and this is not something I'd even considered, um, she actually used when um, Kim, when she set her domain name up she yeah. was www.so-many-places.com yeah. Yeah. Uh, so lots of hyphens in there yes. and she basically says don't do that because mm. at the end of the day you know as Val says to me at the end of every episode of this podcast, where can we find you online, Al? And for me to have to be, you'll find me at alison-tate-books.com. You don't want to be that. You want to just no. be alisontate.com. So if you can't get alisontate.com, then be alisontatebooks.com 
or Alison Tate Awesome or oh, something like Alison that. Tate Author or Alison Tate or Writer or, or something. Alison yes. Tate. I like mm. Alison Tate Awesome. We could be that, right? Yeah, that. Anyway. Yes, yes. Yeah, if you want it. Okay, <laughs> if you want it. So um, now the other thing that she suggests is that you collect email addresses from day one. Oh, and yes, I agree. Yeah, well, again, <laughs> I didn't do this. And, you know, like I look back and I probably wasted about – Oh, I reckon five. Well, when I say wasted, it wasn't wasted, but I probably like I forewent, shall we say, email addresses from about four years of blogging. Mm. Um, and even if you don't plan to necessarily send out a newsletter straight away or anything like that, then just have you know have a sign up mechanism there for when you when you're ready to do something with it. You know, yeah. it's just like sign up for an occasional update on what I'm doing or blah blah blah. Because yeah. this is you know, or sign up to receive my you know my giveaway of my opening chapter or whatever it is that you've got. Um, but but have a sign up sheet there somewhere on your blog from day one because it when you do get your book up, you will have people to email and tell, you know, tell them directly about it. So um, it is something that I also think, you know, I wish I'd done. Um, So those are things. But she's got several, you know, but just simple but really practical tips about launching your blog with a book in mind. So um, if you are thinking about starting an author blog, it's definitely worth having a look. And we will put the link in the show notes. Great, which you can find at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. So let's move on to another link, which is about how to write a kick-ass Amazon bio to sell more books. Don't you love that word, kick-ass? Kick ass. I know, it's so cool, isn't it? It's very American, isn't it? Well, we have to say kick-ass, so. Yes. Know, oh, mind you, are we going to get an explicit tag now for saying that? Oh, no, I don't think that's a really bad word. It's not like, you know, some Just other words. In. Um, now we, we do talk a little bit about bios on a regular basis. We talk mostly Mm. about them on, uh, for the, you know, about page on your website and various things like that. Now the Amazon bio is a really interesting thing because, um, so my books were well and truly up on Amazon before I ever considered the fact that I need, I was like, Oh, I probably should get an author page there on Amazon and, you know, put something on it. And, you know, it was just, it was really like, because I guess I, I, it's not, um, the, my books were available in Australia through the Amazon Australia website and the, the Kindle version was available, but they hadn't sort of gone to the U S or anything. So it was just, wasn't something I really considered, you know, it wasn't a big thing for me at that point. Um, had I been self-publishing, I think I would have been all over it, but I, I wasn't. Um, so then I had to sort of like think about what I was going to put on this bio and she, uh, in this particular, um, post, which is on the verbs.com, um, yes. And it's written by Penny Sansevieri, and it's called How to Write a Kick-Ass Amazon Bio to Sell More Books. And she talks about the fact that you we, we often overlook it, and we might just write a quick about me on that Amazon page and never, ever give it a second thought, whereas it mm. is actually a useful sales and promotional tool. And the reason I liked this particular um, post is I, I think the most important point she makes is the first point she makes, and mm-hmm. it's a really important point for every bio. And I think if we can bear this in mind, it's not about you. Now, I know mm-hmm. that sounds like it's completely counterintuitive given that we are writing a bio about ourselves, but I think it's really, really important to remember that your author bio is actually about your reader and 
you know, for prospective audiences to be able to find what they're looking for. So you want to think about how you want to present yourself, the things you do, your experience to your ideal reader. So think about who you are writing this thing for and think about what they want to know about you as opposed to what you necessarily want to tell them. So this is, I know we talk a lot about cats and things like that and (laughs) and I have no issue with cats. Um, You better not. No, I I don't. But, you know, a reader is not actually looking at your bio to necessarily learn about your love of cats. They are learning about you as an author and about your books. And that's what they're there for. And you know what? Put the cat in, but the cat is the last (laughs) line. Okay? The cat is not the first line. Um, So I I think that that's, you know, I do not put Procrasti Pup in the first line of my bio as much as I would like to because I feel that, you know, he would probably sell more books for me, but, you know, maybe not. So he doesn't go into the first line. Um, And I think it's really important. So if you can keep that in mind all the time, that your bio is really not about you, it's about your reader and what your reader wants to know about you. I think that that is, is probably just a very important thing to to, to stick with. What do you think? Absolutely. In fact, only last week I was giving feedback on a bio to someone and it started with something along the lines of, we'll just call him Jim. Uh, Jim is a chiropractor and golf lover. And I'm like, this is your author bio? And he, and he said, yes. And I said, well, it's true that you're a chiropractor and golf lover, but surely the first thing I want to read as a reader is that you're an author. So maybe you should start off with Jim is an author of whatever kind of books, whether they're fantasy or crime or whatever. And you can include the chiropractor stuff, you know, by day, he's a chiropractor or golf lover mm-hmm. later on as the last thing. And it was interesting because he said, I'm not an author yet, as in as in his book hasn't been published yet. Mm. And I said, you can still get around that. You can still say Jim has been writing for as long as he can remember. Is that true? I asked Jim and he said, well, yes, that's true. And I said, well, then you can put that. Jim has been writing for as long. If you're not comfortable with saying author, then you can mm. say Jim uh, has been writing for as long as you, he can remember or whatever you're comfortable with and then lead into the chiropractor and golf stuff later. It's mm. just it's just think about who your reader wants to read from. They don't necessarily they want to read from somebody who is passionate about their writing and who's the the thing that's top of mind isn't that they're a chiropractor or a golf lover. Unless so, you're yes. writing a book about how to crack your own back, in yes, which case about, yes, yes, I want to know that you're a chiropractor. <laughs> okay. Or you're a golf swing or something yeah. or how to um, not hurt your back in golf. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> now, the so the other the other thing that I think that um, is quite interesting in this particular uh, post on the verbs is that because um, when you're writing for Amazon, um, you are writing for a particular market, but you are not only writing for a particular market, but you are writing for Amazon search engines. And mm. so there is actually some important information in this post about keywords because keywords matter a lot on Amazon. So if Amazon is going to be one of your main sales tools, you want your bio to work for you as a sales and promotional um, tool as well. And the way that that is going to work for you best with Amazon is that you do include some of those really, really important keywords so that Amazon's um, search engines can find you and your book. So the books, obviously you've got it all in your your book information, et cetera, but you want it in your bio as well. 
well because that is just a second bite of the cherry for you to come, you know, for those little Amazon spiders to find you when people are Googling said keywords. So um, think about that. Like, make sure at least one or two of those keywords are in your bio as well as in your book description and your tags and your all of those other things on Amazon. It is a search engine unto itself and you need mm. to treat it as such. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to another link we've got. This is actually on the Australian Writers' Centre blog and it's an interview with illustrator Giuseppe Poli. Now, you may remember that we did a mini interview with Giuseppe some, a few, several episodes ago because I had met him at the Squibby conference and I was just really inspired by his story because he is an IT guy by day mm. and he is an illustrator by night and now he's going into writing um, and he has re- recently recently released his latest children's book which is called Baby Band. He's done the illustrations for that, for that and the words are by Diane Jackson Hill. But we've done another little mini interview with Giuseppe to see how he juggles the fact that he really does have a day job. And the great thing is that he's just got so many exciting projects coming up. They're all a bit hush-hush at the moment, but all I can say is that I don't think he's going to be in IT for much longer because everything's taking off for Giuseppe. And Mm. it's something that you know, you, you, people often think, oh, no, I, I don't have the time. I don't I, – I need to wait till I get long service leave or I need to wait till I retire or, or whatever before I have time to pursue my dreams and my passions. But there, you can certainly do it after hours and Giuseppe mm-hmm. is a great example of that. And not only has he done it after hours and been published and, you know, and, and found um, – book deals with publishers he's just going from strength to strength so you you can't transition over to your next gig um like overnight it's something that does happen gradually but eventually does happen I sound like the ad now don't I you do Um, yes (laughs) it won't happen overnight (laughs) but anyway we'll put that link um in the show notes which of course you can find at uh so you want to be a writer.com.au and I, I, you know, one of the things I love about this interview um, is the question where we asked Giuseppe, you know, how, because his day job in IT and his night job, obviously creatively, you know, illustrating children's picture books, seem to be completely opposite, completely yeah. opposing. And I love his answer to this, where he says, it's quite, you know, IT is quite different to making children's picture books and I feel sometimes I have two brains operating in <laughs> one day. Curiously, though, they are both driven from the one heart and I'm finding my children's picture book nighttime work provides a significant advantage in, you know, in my IT day job. So I think that's a really interesting mm. thing because, you know, people are just like, oh, how can I possibly go home after a busy day and, you know, get into writing or get into something else? You know, it's I'm too tired. But it is kind of a different part of your brain and I think yes. if you tap into that creativity it can be just invigorating for your day job as well and I think for that sure. uh, very much worth reading his um reading his interview for that because you know he talks about how you know the importance of imagination creativity and compassion that you kind of find it he finds in his work um with his illustration work that you know he takes all of that into his day job in IT you know yeah Absolutely. I think that when you feed your creative soul, it only energizes you. 
Yeah, and so he does emphasise how important time management and planning are in both of those mm. things, and that is the other thing that it's really important to do too. If you want to try, you know, well, you you do want to. You're listening to this. You want to be a writer. Well, then you've got to make time to do it, and the only yes. way to do that is effective time management, using the time that you have, not the time that you wish you had. And I think that, um, you know, people do it, and I, if, if they can do it, why not you? Yeah, and Alison is a master of this, of course, and she can find out. That's why she created the course, How to Make Time to Write, because she manages to juggle not only writing her books but also her freelance life with being a mother, being a wife, being involved in countless activities, doing school visits for talks um, and speaking at writers' festivals. I don't know how she fits it all in, but she does, and she not only finds time to write fantastic books that have gone really well, she has so many in the pipeline, which is what I find amazing. So, of course, it's no surprise that she created the course How to Make Time to Write, which, of course, you can find out more about at writercentre.com.au slash time. That's writercentre.com.au slash time. Now, let's move on to the giveaway for this week, Al. Mm -hmm. We have 10 double passes to the film Paris Can Wait, thanks to Transmission Films, which is a feature film debut of Elena Coppola, starring Diane Lane, Alec Baldwin, on a food and wine-filled road trip from Cannes to Paris. Oh. I love Diane Lane. Oh. Don't you? Don't, don't oh. you love Diane? Do you remember when she was on, I think she was in Streets of Fire or something, you know, when she was 20? Do you remember that? <laughs> No. Really? No, sorry. No. <laughs> she was like the she was like the it girl when when we were growing up, Diane Lane. Anyway, <laughs> Paris can wait. Yay. 10 double passes. Um entries uh close the 10th of July. So just go to writercenter.com.au slash win. That's writercenter.com.au slash win in order to enter. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in magazine and newspaper writing, Stage 1, is the fastest way to get there. Step by step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, how to approach editors, how to research and structure your articles, plus interviewing skills, industry expectations and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your very own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash magazine. Are you ready for the word of the week, Al? Could not be more ready. Okay. It's ignoble. That's Ignoble, I-G-N-O-B-L-E. So I-G in front of the word noble, ignoble. Do you know what it means? I do, Val. <laughs> I do know what it means. I don't right. know that I've ever actually like used it in a sentence, uh-huh. but I do know what it means. It means the opposite of noble. Exactly. So this one is quite logical actually. So mm. when the letters I-G are in front of an N, that usually means not. So it simply means not noble. And the Macquarie Dictionary goes on to say that it's that it's also means of low character or low grade. So you might say he had ignoble motives. 
So there you go. Ignoble. Let's just have a little. Let's just break that down a little, shall we? Let's okay. un- unpack yes. that Ooh, in a way. Al wants to talk about the word of the week. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Actually, I don't <laughs> want to talk about that one. I want to talk about oh. ignorant. So, if we're saying that we put "ig" oh. in front of a word and it becomes "not," does that mean that there is a word out? There? Here's one for you, Val. I want you to look this yes. up for me. Is there a word out there that's "norrent"? Ah, that is. Does, a really is the opposite good. of of ignorant "norrent"? Well, I did say that it usually mm. means not. It's not mm. all the time. Okay. Yeah, I don't think there is a word out there called norrent. I want you to come back to me on that, Val, okay? Everyone, take note. It's not in the Macquarie Dictionary. There is no norrent. There, there is no norrent. Mm. I think there should be. <laughs> okay, <laughs> sure. Let us. All right. Hash, hashtag norrent. <laughs> Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Who is it, Al? Oh, God, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it Nicole Alexander? Sorry, I was so focused on hashtag Norrent that I completely lost the plot. My apologies, everyone. It is, in fact, Nicole Alexander, and I have to tell you, I have to tell you, we had the best chat. It was amazing. So, um, Nicole is an amazing lady. She has written eight kind of full-on historical um, novels in mm. eight years. She runs a massive property and she's like the most down-to-earth, uh, just amazing lady. But one of the things that she does brilliantly in her novels is um, a sense of place. There's mm. definitely, you know, you know exactly where you are. You mm. are in rural Australia in her novels and the and we had a really good chat about how she does that about exact because you know I know a lot of aspiring authors are just like you know I'm not getting a sense of place you know you, the feedback they get is that you need to bring the setting up or I'm not yeah. getting a sense of place out of this how do you do that well I asked someone who does it really well so it's definitely worth listening to and um I will put hashtag Norant on the back burner for now <laughs> Nicole Alexander is the best-selling author of seven Australian fiction novels, The Bark Cutters, A Changing Land, Absolution Creek, Sunset Ridge, The Great Plains, Wildlands and River Run. Her first novel, The Bark Cutters, remains the highest-selling debut novel in the rural literature genre and was shortlisted for an Australian Book Industry Award in 2011. Her latest novel, her eighth book in eight years, An Uncommon Woman, is released this month. So welcome to the program, Nicole. Thank you for having me, Alison. All right, so we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. We're going to cast our minds back eight years, and we're going to talk about how did the Bark Cutters come to be published? How did we? How did you sort of get to that point? Well, I've been writing for about twenty years um, oh, prior just the to 20. that. <laughs> just the twenty, just you know, the twenty. <laughs> Working full-time and, and dabbling on the side, um, so, you know, poetry and short stories, travel articles, newspaper articles, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I decided, I'm originally, well, I'm, I'm from rural New South Wales, northern New South Wales, and I decided to go home for a 12-month sabbatical. That was 22 years ago. Oh. Um, I'd returned back from, I'd returned from Singapore, having worked over there, and I thought I'll try my hand at a full-length piece of fiction. It actually took me about seven years to write. Wow. Because I was working full time. I decided to do a master's in literature. I published some poetry, a volume of poetry, which was great. So when I actually finally finished it, I was like, wow, who am I, you know, what am I going to do with this thing that I've created? So I had an agent and I sent it off to her and she said, yes, I'll 
I will look at it, Nicole, but, you know, everybody wants to be, you know, a, a writer of novels. I said, no, I realise that, but if you could just read it and, and give me feedback. And she said, yes, absolutely. So she did, and she said, I really like it. And I thought, well, she sounds very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just what you want your agent to sound like, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. done all right at this. It's, yeah. it's not bad. So she set it off, and it went to um, three publishing houses, and Random House, or Penguin Random House as they're known now, they offered me a contract three months later. Well, that's exciting. But, like, I'm interested in this process of, you know, when people say it took me seven years to write. Now, as you were saying, you were working full time and you were doing other things. Was it seven years to write it, to, to kind of, like, get it to a draft that you were happy with? Like, were you just sort of, like, writing bits, putting it away, getting it out? Like, it wasn't seven years to do a first draft, was it? No, it was probably seven years to do probably about five or six drafts. My problem was that I, de- I, I decided to write something that, you know, as the publisher said to me, isn't something that, a, you know, a first-time author usually picks up on, which is a interweaving historical novel mm. that follows the lives of four generations mm. of pastoral family. Mm. Let's make this as difficult as possible for our first novel, you thought to yourself, didn't you? Yeah, mm. pretty much. Mm. But then when I started writing, I thought, I just don't, I just couldn't find my voice. I just didn't know how to tackle the subject. I wanted to put in all this wonderful history, but I wanted to have the contemporary elements so, you know, the reader could see, you know, the parallels, but also the pitfalls of being in that type of family and that emotional angst and love of land and, you know, problems within rural families that then comes down through the ages. And I think that's why it took me so long because... I'm from a family like that Mm. and I think I was very much aware of, wow, I don't want to tread on anyone's toes. I really don't want someone to read this and say, wow, is she writing about her own family? Mm. So I was very, very conscious of those issues when I started constructing the work. And then, of course, I'd... I hadn't actually done a writing course. I'd been, you know, doing all these other things and I'd been published and that was wonderful, but actually trying your hand at a full-length piece of fiction is extraordinarily difficult, as everyone knows. It's really, really hard. And it was a, a task that I probably wasn't equipped to handle at the very beginning, but at the end of those eight years, redrafting and refining and, and trying to get the voice Right, then I was comfortable to send it out and that's why it took so long. But it was a lot of angst getting it there. Well, I, I, I can imagine it would have been because your books are very interesting because they do swing between that sort of contemporary rural story and historic fiction. Like you, as you say, you have the interweaving and to attempt kind of four narrative voices and all of that going on in your first novel is, is a fairly big ask when you're learning how you write a novel as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And, so did you settle into that sort of rural literature area? Is it, is it your back? Like was it just that you wanted to write the kind of story that you had sort of not, not quite, you know, not exactly lived but lived with, so to speak, like what you saw? Is it, it, was it you sort of like working through the stuff that you um, not, to, not necessarily had experience but that you had experience of, if you know what I mean? I think it's a combination of all those things. You know, they say we're the first-time author that you should probably write what you know, which always intrigues me, you know, if you're a criminal or something like that and you end up having a bestseller um, but or crime writer or whatever. But for me it was like I'd been living in Singapore for three years um, before I returned home to the country. So I had gone from this really built-up, um, totally 100% concrete jungle 
and had been, you know, heavily involved in, you know, marketing capacity with organisations and, and doing a lot of travelling. And then to make that decision to come back to the country was like, wham, I've I've missed this. I don't miss the corporate world. I really enjoy working in the family business and, you know, being involved in a business that has a lot of... Um, you know, history attached to it. So when I thought about writing a piece of fiction, it, it literally was, okay, this is what I know, this is what I love, let's let's try and write something that's set in the bush. So I guess to that, from that point of view, I did try and emulate to a certain extent my own experiences and my family's experiences on the land as far as taking that four generations on one property or the ancestors that have been there. My great-grandfather's buried on one of our properties so I could relate to that sort of, you know, that land tenure and that emotional attachment. What I didn't expect, because I had no knowledge of it at the time, was that I would be lumped within the rural literature category. Oh. Um, now my books, because, uh, you know, my later ones, they're still, they're historical and they're set in, in rural Australia, but now they're classed more as women's fiction because I've sort of, I, I guess I've hopefully and hopefully it's happened to me, I've grown as a writer, so I've, I'm trying to sort of, you know, develop my own little niche in the marketplace. Um, but that's, yeah, that's how the bar cutters first came in, into being and that's how I sort of was, you know, landed with the rural literature genre. Okay, so tell us about your latest book, which is, an, on, an, look at me, I can't even speak, An Uncommon Woman, not easy to say fast, just quietly. <laughs> um, is it, it, like, how has, how has your process as a writer changed now to you know in the writing of that book compared to say your first book eight years ago well I think after by the time I got to the third and fourth book um that was when there was that big upsurge in rural literature and the publishers were just bringing on a lot of authors who could write about the land Mm. and I saw the genre as being very crowded and the other thing was is that I'd never written um romance Mm. in my works so they'd always been straight fiction but because you know booksellers publishers etc they really they have to be able to pigeonhole you in order to to sell you to market you etc so I was always lumped under that rural romance category as well and I thought well that's that's not my interest I haven't been writing that I have been writing very much about pastoral Australia so I prefer to go down the line of historical pastoral Australia basically and not Sort of, and so that's moved me away from the interweaving narrative with the contemporary bits added in. Yeah. And I think it makes for a stronger work. So I think it was probably with um, my fourth book, Sunset Ridge, I started to move around, move away from that sort of, you know, the, the contemporary issues as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes, from my point of view, I enjoy doing the research and I love writing about pastoral Australia because our our history is so much more than just, um, you know, convicts and the military and early settlement, etc. Um, I've written about that as well with Wildlands, but yeah, I really enjoy writing that 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 pastoral history at the risk of repeating myself. And I think my work sort of just naturally has has followed that line of traction to a certain extent. So now it's a case of, wow, what's a great period in Australian pastoral history and what can I write about or what can I research that's going to give me a great narrative that's, you know, going to really drive characters forward to a certain extent. 
Well, that's an interesting question because I was going to ask you that question. Like, do you like do you just choose a period that looks interesting and start researching until you come up with a story, or have you already spotted some detail, you know, somewhere along the way that you then can weave a story around? Like, how does the um, like, for example, with your latest book, An Uncommon Woman, she says very slowly. Um, how did you like? Was that a, a case of you just stumbling across an interesting period, or how did that work? Um, well, one of the themes that I like to use in my works is man versus nature. You know, it's one of those great literary themes mm. and I'm a great fan of Ernest Hemingway. It's the old man and the sea. Um, so I'm always looking for that, that struggle between man and nature. And so with An Uncommon Woman, I already knew that I wanted to have a novel that, you know, as part of, part of the, the backstory to a certain extent, was about this prickly pear invasion, which is a, no, a noxious weed mm. that invaded southern Queensland and northern New South Wales, and it engulfed hundreds of thousands of acres of land from the late 1800s through to about the 1940s, and it's, it's still very prevalent in some areas, and it ruined a lot of pastoral land. So I thought, wow, so we have this fight between man and trying to eradicate this weed. Now, what's a good period to set it in? And I decided to do, to, well, to choose 1929 just before the stock market crash in New York, and then which then leads into recession and then depression in Australia because I have stories from my own family about those years, uh-huh. in, including fighting this noxious weed and what it was like in the bush in the late 20s and the 30s and the 40s. So I had that as a rough idea. So sometimes I choose um, a period, sometimes it's an actual event, and I think, yes, I'm going to work with that. Sometimes it's a story that I picked up from my father. A lot of my my works... Um, have something in there that my father's told me about. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he passed away two months ago, but I am very fortunate in that I've, I've had, you know, ample time to have talked with him in the past and to note a lot of things down, and we actually have quite a large um, archive as well with our rural holdings, so I can go back through diaries and check um, weather conditions and grass conditions and if it was wow. drought, if it was raining and that type of thing. So it's an amazing resource to have I'm I'm really really fortunate and you know some of them aren't in very good repair um, and a lot of it is some of it is just word of mouth that's just been handed down and written down as well Mm. so you have to take all of that with a grain of salt because of course um, oral history is dependent on people's recall as you know Mm. so you can never be assured that what you're hearing is a hundred percent but if you you know delve through books go through Trove, go through the archives, digital archives, you can usually find something to to back it up to a certain extent. So I've been lucky in that regard. But with An Uncommon Woman, I was actually just doing a general search through Trove, um, just pastoral search for sort of 1929 to 1933. And I found this newspaper article and it was in the Tasmanian Examiner and it was, um, I think it was the early half of 1933, and it was a headline that said that a woman had purchased her own pastoral station in Queensland. And I thought, how extraordinary that a woman buying a parcel of land, granted it's a pastoral station in Queensland, it's not a small plot. No. Yes, should be noted in a newspaper in the Tasmanian Examiner. And it turns out that it was actually in a number of newspapers at that time because it was a reasonably rare event. So that gave me, um, I suppose you'd have to say, the, the premise for the novel. Mm. 
Isn't that fascinating though? But I mean, you know, I think if um, if I was to go down that road, if I was to start researching, you know, something, I don't think I'd ever come back. I think I would probably disappear <laughs> into trove and never be seen again because I think that that sort of stuff is so fascinating. So, I mean, how do you know when you've done enough research? Like how do you know that you're, that you're ready to go? Well, once I had that, I'd already been read, and I always read quite widely on the period I'm going to write about. So I'll read about the 20s and the 30s. So I'll read fiction and non-fiction. So non-fiction, so I have a great sort of, you know, general view of the history of the period. And then fiction from, if it's possible, um, from works of that period. So I can get an idea of voice, of um, attitudes, dress, and it's quite fascinating that when you compare works of fiction from a particular period to checking against non-fiction as far as fact-checking, how spot on it invariably is. Mm. So once I've done that, and then I've found my little pearl that tells me what I'm going to write about. So in this case, a newspaper article. I know where it's going to be set, um, which is Queensland. I know it's got to be in a, in a you know, fairly remote pastoral area. I then start writing. So once I start writing, it's very much I only get, you know, check for, for factual details when required because otherwise my head would be in a bucket and I would never go <laughs> from trove. I would be a wormhole and I would be in there for my life. <laughs> that is hilarious. I can just see you there with your, you there with your head in a bucket. Um, so you say like you get those details and then you start writing. So now my next question has to be, uh, you know, like have you plotted out a story? You know, are you a – or do you just sort of like – at what point does the character come to life for you? Um, I usually write the first chapter – and then I, I know that that's probably not going to be the first chapter. Mm. So I might write um, the second and the third chapter before. It takes a little while to come to grips with the character, with the points of view. And I've done all my, you know, unfortunately the, the groundhog work of the writer, as you know, is, you know, we've got to do all this CSI profiling, who your character is, what their background is, what their likes are, what their dislikes are, what their parents were like, what their grandparents were like. So you get a full... You know, a fully rounded character, basically. You're not going to use, like, two-thirds of that work, but you need it so your character is authentic. Mm. Um, So that's, I guess, very much part of, you know, me doing that before I start to begin. Do I plot? I might do a little bit. Mm. I tend to wait and see um, how the characters start to grow, and then when I'm about a third of the way through the book, I have a better idea of how it's going to pan out. I'm not a great plotter. The reason being is that when I've done that in the past and then my character decides to go in a different direction and I say to myself, that character would actually be better going over there, but I can't do that now because this is the end result and I've set up everything else underneath mm. to go in this in, in this direction. So that's why I don't plot um, as finely as probably some other writers do. The other thing is, is that I'm on a book a year contract. Mm. So I effectively have about seven or eight months to write, a minimum of about 130,000 words. Yes. And I do, have a, I do have a day job like most writers. Um, so I'm very aware of, okay, let's, let's do it quickly and efficiently and it will start writing and if it all falls to pieces, that's fine. If I overwrite, I can delete. Mm. Um, if it needs to be padded out, I can do that towards the end. Um, 
and I'm usually making notes and sort of, you know, I have my little hieroglyphics on the side as I'm writing just to keep in check what I'm, you know, what I want each character to do. But it's I, I do like the characters sort of lead me because if they're, if they're well-rounded and if you have a general idea of where the story's going, what you want the end result to be, what you want the reader to feel, the character should be able to lead you there without you plotting it down from A to Z. Okay, so let's just have a little chat about the eight books in eight years, book a year kind of um, time frame that you've got going on there because, you know, you are doing your – they're very – you know, there's a lot of historical detail. You're doing quite a bit of research. How does the year break down for you? Like how long does it actually take you to do that, you know, to draft the thing out and um, get yourself into a position where you've actually managed to write around 130,000 words? Okay, so my submission date is usually towards the end of January um, for manuscript submission to Penguin Random House. So then I usually pass out for about three and a half weeks. Um, I regroup and have a month where I'm not doing any writing at all and then invariably the edits are coming back from the book that's just been submitted for me to go through and I've got to start thinking about the next one. Um, so this is a very common thing when you're on a sort of, you know, regular contract, this juggling of past, present and, and future mm. all the time. So I guess I really don't start to write in earnest until about May. Okay. And it will probably take me all of May to write a very measly five or 6,000 words and I will have a lot of, you know, printing out, reading it and screwing it up and putting it in, in the waste paper bin. By June, by the end of June, I should have about 20,000 words um, done and then after that I just have to do 5,000 words a week. Right. So it's... Previously, I tried to sort of fit things around work, you know, my day job and whatever else. And it's it's very much a case that if you are, you know, if you, you know, it's hard to get a contract in Australian publishing and and to stay published, and to stay um, fresh, and to ensure that your followers still enjoy your work. So, one of my greatest things was that if I had a week off and I was doing my day job and I went back to writing. I'd then have to spend two days rereading everything I'd done the week prior mm. to remind myself of where I was up to. So the most efficient way of getting through the work was simply to do something every day. Mm. So it doesn't matter if I only get, you know, 400 words down on the page. At least the work is present. It's it's present in my mind, if you know what I mean, and I'm not continually having to go back and double-check things, which is how I worked in, in the early days because mm. I'd like, oh, this is fine. I can go away and do a work, you know, do my other work for a week or ten days and come back to it. No, I'm someone it has got to be percolating in my head all the time because we all know that when you're a writer, you're closing the door, You're it's a solitary profession, it's an imagined world that you're creating, that you're creating. And for you to create that imagined world, you so have to be immediately in that world yourself. Mm. So that's the only way that I can, one, get the work done in a timely manner, um, even though it's hard yards. I've, I've, I made the choice that there were certain things I would have to sort of give up, like Sunday morning sleep-ins and <laughs> maybe some social functions and yes, I would have to to you know work at night sometimes, and you know it, it wasn't going to work for any you know for the majority of people in my life all of the time. Mm. But I think that 
you know, that's one of the things you have to give up when you're creative, unfortunately. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, you, you have to make choices. So that's how I – that's basically how I do it. It's just, yes, this week I have to do 5,000 words and if it means that you can't go out this weekend, Nicole, well, you can't. So Make the choice. Yeah, you make the choice. You make the choice to be to be published and, and hopefully to, you know, have people um, appreciate what you're trying to do. They might necessarily like what you do, um, but the fact that Australia is a democracy and we can pretty much publish what we like anyway, we should all be blessed in the first place. There's a lot of places, as we know, across the world where you can't. Yes. So, um, yeah, so from that point of view, for me, it's, it's very much, I'm very, I'm very, very disciplined in that regard. All right, so the other thing that's very important in your novels, and you talked about you know, being in the world and being present in the world, is the setting because the sense of place is, is clearly a very – like your love of rural Australia and you know, the pastoral world comes through in your work. Is that – like what tools do you use to build that sense of place? Like do you – are you consciously trying to evoke that or how are you um, – how do you create it, I guess, that's the question, because I know that a lot of people struggle with that sense of place in their work. Okay. Um, what I do is I step into uh, literally the shoes of my character and wherever they are, if they're in a main street or if they're in the country, and, but I just step into their shoes and I see what they see. And then I see, you know, if, I, if it's a rural environment, I'm fortunate that I'm able to look at the land around me mm. and, you know, breathe it touch it, feel it, I know what it is, I know what the world is that I'm creating. So I know what that character's feeling. Now, the difference is when you're writing historical works is that character's going to think slightly different compared to a contemporary character Mm -hmm. because they're moulded by a whole set of different circumstances and beliefs, backgrounds, economies, you know, etc. So that's probably the main thing with historical stuff is that you have to think the way the character would think in that day and age when when he or she are perceiving the environment around them. And it's the detail for me. So if you want, if you're a writer and and you're trying to get a sense of place, look deeply at what you're trying to write about. Are you writing about someone sitting underneath a tree? Go out, touch a tree, feel the tree, sit under a tree for an hour and watch the way the wind moves the leaves. Understand how nature's at work in your environment. Similarly, if, you know, if the scene is perhaps in a built-up area, if it's in a more urban spot, well, then try and see how that feels. Is it cold? Are you standing in the shadows under an awning? Um, is the wind blowing? Is the wind not blowing? Are there leaves? Where do the leaves come from? There might be a park nearby. So it's a little bit like when you're doing your um, background research on your characters, you, you also have to do the research on your environment as well. And then I think you have to write it, write it as if it's a living, breathing thing. It's, you know, because the environment, if you think of it as a person, your environment is filled with energy regardless it be, whether it be city or country. So if you think of it as a living entity, I think you'll find that it's then easier to write about. That's great advice. So you're almost, I mean, you're basically looking at it as, as that you're treating it like it's another character within your work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I, right. should have, I should have just said that, Alison. No, no, no. I liked the way you said it better because my, I just gave the broad brush approach, whereas you gave us the details, which is why your sense of place comes through so beautifully. See, that's how it works. <laughs> right there. 
<laughs> demonstrated. We're showing, not telling. Um, now, with you, talk, you mentioned you have a full time job. Um, so you're running the family business, basically. Are you at, at the? Is yes. That, is so, that, yeah, so your day job. Yeah. So my day job, I'm business manager for the properties. Yeah. Um, wow. So we actually downsized about 18 months ago with my parents' retirement um, and they moved into Moree. So previously we were about 120 kilometres northwest of Moree. Wow. And so, yes, and as I mentioned earlier, unfortunately my father passed away a couple of months ago. So we still have um, some of our properties out there. But I'm now based in Moree, so I'm literally commuting. So it's a 220-kilometre trip commute to get up there for work. Wow. So, so yes, so life has changed quite um, substantially, but, yes, that's my day job. So All right. So how do you – you're managing that, the commute, all of the different things that you're doing there. How are you managing the demands? Because an author's life, if you, I mean, you talked about the fact that, you know, you've, you're, you know, you've essentially got a year to, you know, produce a book, et cetera, but you've also got to promote a book within all that as well, and you're, you're researching other books, you're editing other books. You have a lot of demands on your time, not just for writing. So, you know – how do you know what does a typical day look like for you? I mean, you you do speaking work, you're judging literary competitions. How do you fit it all in? Okay, um, well, the short answer is with great difficulty, yes, I suppose. I can imagine. Um, but most of the time, it's very much a case of okay, when I'm promoting a new book, I just block out time. Mm. So, and most of my well, all my previous books, most of them have come out in September. This one's coming out now because. We just rejigged my contract and with my father's passing, etc. Yes. I won't actually have another book coming out until 2019 now. Right. Because there's just a lot of paperwork and different family things to attend to. Yeah. So for the first time I'm, I'm having a little bit of a break, but I'll still have to start writing at the end of this year. But normally I would block out time. So in the past I've done some very big, big tours. I've done, you know, four state tours on the road for sort of, you know, four weeks, etc. Um, this year I'm only doing a week and I'm only going to Western Queensland. So most of my publicity is going to be interviews. Um, right over the phone, et cetera, print, radio, et cetera, and, and kind people such as yourself who are willing to hear me ramble on. Loving um, hearing you ramble on. Let's face um, it. So, yeah, it's it's what I can fit in, what I can do. Um, you know, my publicist, she's great. She just says to me, Nicole, I'll just, you know, tee everybody up and everyone will come back to you with a couple of times and we'll just go from there. But we do have reasonable mobile reception out on the property. Yep. So I have walked out of the cattle yards and done an interview on new occasions. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> without the cow, you know, getting the car and drive away so we can't hear the cows moving in the background. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, the time management thing is something um, – it's very difficult for everybody, I think, to fit it all in. Mm. For me, it's just blocking out time and I guess now uh, we have a new manager working on our properties now, so which means hopefully once things settle down a little bit and, you know, with me being based in Moree now, I only have to go out two or three days a week. Mm. So that will hopefully free me up. Um, but if it doesn't, well, then I'd be taking the view, okay, you have to write four days a week. Right. Um, so that would effectively mean I don't have a weekend. Right. Uh, yeah. So you're basically applying the same discipline that you apply to writing to everything else? Yeah, to a certain extent, but yeah. just, just to try and, and get it all done. Um, and I think probably I'd taken too much on my plate, um, which is why earlier this year I decided to just have a short break and I'm mm-hmm. very grateful that the publishers decided to, you know, go you know go along with me to a certain extent. Mm. Um 
Because, yes, it does get to the point, eight books, eight years, working full-time, It's it's got to stop sometime. You know, I feel like you need to lie down, frankly. Yeah. So um, you probably do. That's right. And a Bex, wasn't that the yeah. old thing? A, a Bex and a good lie down. Sounds like, sounds like a plan. <laughs> do you do a lot in the way of um, maintaining an online profile? Are you doing, you know, sort of any, do you keep social media, you know, going or, or anything like that? Yeah, well, Facebook's my main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because I've, that was the thing that I sort of started with earlier in the day uh, when I first started, you know, the novels started being published and the publisher suggested, yes, go with Facebook. So of course, eight years ago, eight and a half years ago, Facebook was the big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been quite a good medium for me. I blog on that. Um, and oh, you blog there. So are you just Nicole Alexander on Facebook or are you? Yeah, just yeah? Nicole Alexander. All right. So I'll put a link in the show notes so people can find you and follow yeah. you. Um, so Facebook is where you do most of your activity though? Yeah, most activity. And, I'm, you know, I'm on Twitter and I'll put some things up on that. Um, yeah, Instagram I'm not so good at and I only came to Instagram last year. I'm Apparently I'm a very naughty girl because I wasn't more enthusiastic about Instagram. But it's sort of like how long is a piece of string and – I think for me, you know, my followers like Facebook, they like the blogs, they like the rural pictures, they like anything to do with tours. So it's, it's just a better medium for me. It's, it's easier to a certain extent. Yeah. Well, I think it's that thing of um, we talk often about, you know, finding the thing you're comfortable with and, and doing that because I think if you try to do all of the things, you can get yourself all tied up in knots. But if you do the thing that you like, then you're much more likely just to kind of maintain it, aren't you? Well, I think that's exactly right. And I know, you know, I've had this discussions with, you know, Penguin Random House Marketing about being on Pinterest and this and that and whatever. And it's, Frank, I don't have the time to do it all. No, you don't. Um, no one does. And, you know, for me, it's just like, as you say, choose one. That, that works. Could I be doing more? Everyone could do more. Does it matter in the scheme of things? It may or it may not. At the end of the day, you've got to have a good product. Mm. So I can do as much social media as I like, but if the product isn't good, it doesn't matter. No, that's very, very true. Yeah. All right. And just to wrap up for today, because, you know, clearly you have, uh, you know, a thousand things to do in your busy day. Um, what are your three top tips for writers, for aspiring authors? Um, perseverance would be number one mm. um, because, you know, it's very much about redrafting and redrafting and redrafting. Number two, writing courses are great. Um, I do thoroughly recommend them. Mm. I don't think you need to do more than about three or four because at some stage you really just have to put your backside in the chair and write. Mm. That's what it's all about, just doing the work. And lastly, I think because it is a rather hard profession and people can get disillusioned um, very, very quickly, I think that, uh, and this is good for life in general anyway, you have to be kind to yourself. You know, nothing happens overnight. If you're passionate about it, um, the the result will be there for you. But it, it is that old story, you know, everyone says, wow, life's a journey. You know, it's it's the road, it's not the end result. Well, writing is very much about, is about that journey. Mm-hmm. So be kind to yourself along the way. That's fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Nicole. And thank you very much for talking to us today. I think it's been really interesting. I hope that our listeners have gained as much from the conversation as I have. Best of luck with your new novel, which I think sounds amazing. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to your website so everyone can um, have a look at, at that. Uh, it's just it's just Nicole Alexander 
au is that correct yes that's correct excellent yeah. okay so check it out people if you um if you have a chance and um thanks very much nicole best of luck thank you so much allison well there you go always love hearing from nicole alexander she's awesome she is amazing and I, I get you know again i i just think that it's important to kind of have a look at the like the amount of work involved in researching an historical novel and doing yeah. one a year and the kind of schedule that she talks about that she's she's been on for the last eight years, I, I you know, I take my hat off to her. It's an amazing, amazing thing to do with the quality of, of, you know, work that she produces as well. I think, you know, hats off to you, Nicole, and we're looking forward to reading your new book, which of course is out this week. Absolutely. All right. Uh, that brings us almost to the end of this week's podcast, Al. Gosh. Can you believe it? No. I, no, <laughs> I can't believe it. I, here we are. What are you up to this week? Oh, you know, breaking up fights probably. <laughs> <laughs> I want you all to think about me here, just breaking up fights. There's just so much wrestling goes on in my house on any given day and I'm sure that other mothers of boys will will totally understand where I'm coming from, but it's just, you know, it's so I go in and I say to them, what are you doing? Because there's like this massive thumping and they've got every pillow in the house, you know, on the floor and there's mattresses and there's – and they just turn to me and they go, we're having big bro, little bro time, mum. And you go, well, how am I supposed to respond to that? Like really? I'm supposed to encourage them to have healthy relationships, right? So, so realistically though, how much writing will you get done or how much work will you get done in the school holidays? Proportionally compared uh, to non-school holidays. Oh, pr- proportionally. You know the interesting thing, I think, like we, because we we do have to we discuss this, you know, on a regular basis. Because obviously the school holidays just seem to roll around about every <laughs> yeah, they four sure minutes, do. don't they? Like every four minutes we're on yes. holidays, and um, I I find it's an interesting thing, but I actually find I probably get less done in the holidays now that my kids are older than I used to, what? and that's. Well, I know. I know it makes no sense. They're just a lot easier to manage when they're smaller in a funny sort of way. You can put them to bed. You can sort of, you know, there's there's things you can do with them that just, you know, can put them in front of a Wiggles video. They just don't stay there anymore. I can't put them in front of the Wiggles anymore. They won't stay. Drive them around places too. I could take them. I mean, they do go out more. So there is there is a little bit of, you know, there's some respite there. They do go out more. Um, But yeah, they take up and they also take up a lot more emotional energy than they used to. It's a, you know, physically you're very tired from them when they're smaller but emotionally they're very draining and that's quite difficult for a writer because you just there's that small part of your headspace that's always kind of you know buzzing about what's going on with them as well you're managing a lot of life in a small brain well my brain seems to be getting smaller um (laughs) but yeah so I look I probably proportionately I'd be down to probably 50 percent I reckon Oh, over yeah. the holiday period, I, I'd say, because what I try to do is just man. I, I try to keep everything else going. So, um, but I I try to organise myself so that I don't have a huge amount of writing, actual you know physical writing to do over yeah. those two weeks. But I'll do a lot of planning. I had this great idea last week uh, for for a new thing that I'm so excited about. So yeah. I'll I'll spend some time. You know, can you tell us yet? No, I can't. I can't oh. tell you anything. Because I don't actually know. Um, okay. 
so I'll spend some time. I, I'm going to spend some time doing some like researching and reading, and you know that's what I've got planned. Basically, that's what I'm working on is just right. some thinking stuff because I can do that a lot easier when my brain is full of breaking up fights. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> well, this is exciting that you've got a new idea in your head. I am excited because Could you know be it's another been- series. Well, it could be, and it's one of those things too. I've had a few ideas. Like I haven't had like no ideas, but I, I've been yeah. sort of, like I've been sort of busy doing a whole range of other things, for, particularly over the last you know few months. And so I was starting to wonder if the ideas fairy had forgotten where I lived. You know, mm. she kind of did these little flybys with these half-hearted you know bits and pieces of stuff that was a bit like meh. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just this one day, I was like, whoa, yep, that's it. I like that one, and so I've started you know researching that. Yeah, right. Fantastic. So now I have to do something with it, but, you know, I'll I'll, I'll keep you posted, people. Awesome. And meanwhile, I'll be enjoying the peace and quiet that um, my neighbours are bringing me because it's school holidays. Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) My neighbours never listen to this. We have such opposing views of school holidays. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. Where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on, um, where am I, Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. Awesome. You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, feel free to search for me on Facebook. I'm the Valerie Koo that lives in Sydney and connect there. And in the meantime, you can find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.